We've been looking at Matthew chapter 9, and last week we looked at verses 9 through uh, 13, and today we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 17. Um, but there's a lot of different things going on in this, this chapter of Matthew. And uh, there's different conversations, there's different illustrations, and they all come together around the exact same message. Uh, they're wonderfully knit together and put together um, and, and kind of inspired by the Holy Spirit um, to really make a great and incredible statement. And um, it's, it's done through Matthew as he pens these words, but don't forget it's, it's, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Matthew is uh, writing this. And uh, last week we looked at dinner with sinners and we looked how Matthew was converted and the first thing he did was throw a big party at his house and he wanted to invite those who didn't know Christ, the the very dredges of society, the people that he hung around with, um, to his house for a party, a banquet, and to he wanted to invite the Savior that saved him so that they could meet him, so that they could be introduced to him. And... Um, we saw that last week. Today we're going to be looking at kind of a, a parable, an illustration that he uses of new and old wine skin, skins and also new and old garments. And he uses those as an illustration in our text this morning. And we're going to kind of work our way into that. Um, but it's really the, the topic here of, of Matthew 9 that we've been looking at is that God will always receive someone who comes to him as a sinner. He's willing to open his arms to a sinner. But he will not receive those who think that they're righteous. He will refuse them. And the key passage we looked at last week is basically found in verse 13 there. But just so we have a a contextual understanding of of what we're looking at, let's just uh, read here um, verses from verse 9 onward down to verse 17. And you can follow along. As Jesus passed verse 9 on from there, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose, and he followed him. Now it happened as Jesus uh, sat at the the, uh, table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come, our key verse, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came and said to him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friend of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins. And then both are preserved. The key verse there, like I said, was verse 13. Where he says, For I am come not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, what he's trying to get across to these self-righteous people is that, you know what, the call of the gospel is extended only to sinners. It's not extended to those who are righteous who think they're righteous. It's interesting because the call of the gospel is not extended to those religious people in our society. It bypasses them. But it's really extended to those who are irreligious. It's not extended to those who think they're okay. It's actually extended to those who know they're not. (laughs) See, the glorious purpose of Christ coming into the world and... Some of your uh, translations in, 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 in 13 have two repentance at the end, and some do not. Okay? In the Gospel of Luke, he includes the words, he came to call sinners to repentance. Those two words, he includes that. And he does that for a very specific purpose. It's kind of understood in Matthew. Uh, 
But in some texts, those two words, to repentance, is not there. So it's not a big deal. It's just a contextual argument that, that goes around. But, but Luke does include that. But the one thing that Matthew makes clear in this, this whole thing, is that the call to sinners goes out for confession and repentance and also for forgiveness. He makes that abundantly clear. That Christ came in the world to the world to help those who are sick, those who are sinful. And you can go all the way back as far as the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1, and you begin to look at who's included in the genealogy. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, we all have people in our families that, you know, uh, whoever they may be, a distant relative or whatever, and they were kind of maybe a little off the wall or whatever, and sometimes we just kind of leave them out of the family when we're telling about our family, you know, because it's kind of their, kind of a sore spot of the family. Well, you know, and if we had a Messiah coming to earth, we probably would not have included some of the people that God included in Christ's genealogy. For example, some of the women he mentioned there was Tamar. She was an incestuous woman. This is listed in the genealogy of the Messiah. There's also Rahab. She was a professional prostitute. There's also Ruth, who was a member of a cursed nation. There's also the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, who was an adulteress. See, we shouldn't be surprised to find those kind of people in the genealogy of Christ because those are the kind of people that he came to serve. Those are the kind of people he came to save. God came into the world to save sinners. And even John the Baptist, when he appeared on the scene, you remember in, 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 uh, in uh, the, the third chapter there, you hear his message. And we looked at that when we went through that. And his message was, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he says that they were baptized. He was baptizing people who were his followers because they were confessing their sins. But his message was one of repentance. See, that's the heart of the gospel. Whenever you hear a pastor or a preacher say, you know what, I don't, I don't preach on sin because that's negative and I don't want to you know, be a downer to our people, so I want to keep everything happy, happy, happy. I'm sorry, that man or that woman, whoever that person is who's so-called a preacher, is not preaching what the Bible says is the gospel. They're just not. You can't preach the gospel and leave sin out. You can't preach the gospel and leave repentance out. Always you're doing is you're encouraging people to continue in their own sin. They're not leading people to salvation. They're basically affirming them where they're at. In their self-condemning, self-righteous, their own egotistical, driven, sinful state. Well, that's what they're encouraging them to stay in. When you don't talk about sin, when you don't talk about judgment. Even when you come to chapter 4, the Lord himself, his message in Matthew verse, four, or verse 17, it says, from that time Jesus began to preach. And what did he preach? He said, repent. Even in, in chapter 5, in his sermon, he, we, we looked at that and in depth, the Sermon on the Mount there. And he talked about how if you're going to come into the kingdom of God, you have to be one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. That was the qualification. Well, guess what? The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had no thirst. They had no hunger for righteousness because they already thought they were righteous. If you're hungry, you're not going to be kind of pining away, wanting something else to eat. You're going to be full. So the whole idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness was totally foreign to them. They were unaware of their Lack of righteousness. They thought they had all the righteousness they needed. And even in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, the Lord says, when you pray, you better pray like this. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. In other words, don't think that you're, you're, you're just too good. Don't think that you don't have any sins. You better ask God for forgiveness. And so all of Matthew, the whole context of the gospel of Matthew, the message is, you know what? Hello, mankind, you're sinful. You're sinful. We don't like to hear that. I remember before I was saved, my brother was talking to me about the gospel. And, you know, I came from kind of a, uh, it was a Roman Catholic family. And, you know, we went to church every Sunday. And I was an altar boy in the whole nine yards. And my one brother was just a very uh, 
crazy guy. He was doing all sorts of bad stuff. And uh, I remember looking at him and saying, well, you know what? I'm glad I'm not like him. And I remember him being converted and then coming home from college one weekend, sitting down with my brother, and rather than offering me a beer, which I would never drink in front of my family, that's how self-righteous I really was. I'd go and get drunk with my friends, but I'd never do it in front of my family. It's just crazy. But I remember him, instead of a beer, he sat there with the Bible, and he started to tell me that I needed Christ, that Christ had changed his life, and that he had forgiven him of all the, the sinful things he had done. And, and I just sat there on the edge of my chair, and I said, are you crazy? We're Catholics. Talking like this, man, mom and dad are... Mom, dad was a Methodist, but mom's probably turning over in her grave. You can't say these kind of things. We're okay. We're part of the Catholic Church. And I remember the whole point of my conversion was when somebody finally said, you know what, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I kept on comparing myself to my family, saying I'm not as bad as them. I don't do the things they do. I don't need this. And finally, God convicted my heart and showed me the depth of my sin and how lost I really was. And that I could go to church for the rest of my life 24-7 and it wouldn't make any impact on my sinfulness. I needed something greater for that. And so God opened my eyes and I came to Christ. And I was saved. But I remember feeling that self-righteous attitude when somebody told me that I was a sinner. How dare you? Well, that's what Matthew's doing over and over again. Even in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 21, the whole church, as it began to extend itself, the apostles preaching, Paul says, we testified to the Jews and the Greeks. And what did they testify about? Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. In Acts 26, 20, Paul says to Agrippa that, you know what? When I was converted on the road to Damascus, God gave me a vision. He gave me a heavenly vision. That's how Saul, who used to go out and kill Christians for the fun of it, basically, was converted. And that's the Paul, the Apostle Paul of the New Testament. That guy used to go out and murder Christians. And yet God transformed him. God changed his life, forgave him, and used him. In an incredible way. Well, Paul says, I've gone from there to Damascus, to Jerusalem, throughout all the borders of Judea, and then to the Gentiles. Well, what was your message, Paul? Well, his message, basically, he says, was that they should repent and that they should turn to God and do works fit for repentance. And then he even adds at the end of his testimony there, he says, you know what? For these reasons, the Jews came into the temple, caught me teaching this truth. And as a result, they wanted to kill me. The religious people of Paul's day wanted to kill him for preaching a message. Well, what was the message? The message was simply, you have no self-righteousness. You have no righteousness on your own. And that was an insult to the religious people of Jesus' day, just like it's an insult to religious people in our day. When you tell them you think that you're religious, you think that you're righteous, the Bible says there's no, not one that is righteous. There's not one that does good. And he said, basically to them, you better change, you better repent. Let's look at that word, repentance, just briefly this morning. It's really, what, what Matthew's doing is he's, he's telling us that we need to repent, and he's looking at the, the, the wrong response from the religious leaders of the day. Well, the word repent, basically, it means a total turnaround. It means you're going one direction, and it's an about face, and all of a sudden you're going the other direction. This direction, you're running away from God. You're in the world. You're in your sin. You're doing your own thing. Repentance is when the point comes in your life when you make an about face. And all of a sudden, instead of running into sin, you're running away from sin. And you're running toward God. You're not running away from him anymore. Because he changed your heart. It indicates a total turnaround. The Greek word means more than just sorrow. You know, those of us who've been parents, you know, when the kid gets caught and they do something wrong and they come, oh, I'm sorry. Sometimes that doesn't mean anything, does it? Because five minutes later, they're doing the same thing, right? 
And you catch them again. You say, hey, what are you doing? You know, you shouldn't be doing. Oh, I'm sorry. It's just words. They're not really sorry. They're just looking for a different angle to do what they want to do. Well, see, the word repentance means more than just sorrow. It indicates a sorrow that leads to a change. First of all, a change of purpose. When you come to Christ, He gives you repentance. You do that about face. All of a sudden, you have a totally brand new purpose in life. To serve Him, to honor Him. Not to do your own thing. It's a change of direction, as I just stated. It's a change of life. It's even a change of opinion. See, people that are running away from God have an opinion of God that's not usually favorable when it comes right down to it. They may acknowledge, oh yeah, I believe in God and He's up there and everything, but don't ask me to you know, serve Him. Don't ask me to you know, give my life to Him. I'm having too much fun doing what I want to do. One commentator, Brodus, says this, Whenever this Greek word is employed in the New Testament, the reference, listen to this, is to change the mind from sin to holiness. It's a changing of the mind from sin to holiness. That's kind of the undergirding of that word. Every time it's employed, that's what it means. It's really a word that's synonymous almost with conversion. It means the same thing. It's a change in one's life. And it's accompanied by deep sorrow over sin, not just saying, oh, I'm sorry. It's a turning from sin to holiness. When the Apostle Paul was instructing Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul was kind of his mentor, you might say. Timothy was a kind of a new pastor, a new, new uh, leader in the church. And so Paul came alongside him and helped him out. He says this in chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. He says, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but must be gentle to all men, able to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose him. Now, remember, he's telling this young pastor how to deal with the people. And then he says this, if God perhaps will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who has taken them captive by his will. It's something that God gives us, repentance. I didn't wake up one day and go, oh, I guess I'll just go repent. (laughs) Sounds like a good thing. No. It was something that God did in my heart. It's something that God did within me. Had nothing to do with me, really, other than just yielding to the Spirit of God in that way. And see, people who, the only way to get people out of the snare of the devil is for repentance to happen in their life. So you have to preach with meekness and gentleness and patience, but your message should always include repentance because that's the only thing that's going to save anybody. In Acts 17.30, when Paul was on Mars Hill, he still didn't change his message. He was in Athens there in this very elite society. And basically the message, message of God that he gave was one of repentance. He said, repent, because you know what? If you don't repent now, there comes a day when God will judge the world. And what he was telling them very simply was repent or else. Beloved, I don't know if you look about the world and see what's going on today, just in the politics, in the financial realm, every, the climate, everything. Something's happening. We're drawing closer to a time that will be like no other time. And the only way to be ready for that time is to be found in Christ. To realize your own sinfulness and to come to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's that simple, and yet it's that hard. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist was preaching, and people came confessing his, their sins, as they said. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, in verse 7 of Matthew 3, basically, he says this about them. These are the religious leaders of the day. Here's what John the Baptist calls them. He says, oh, generation of snakes, let me see in your life the fruit of repentance. And then he goes on, he says, and don't say to yourselves, oh, we are of Abraham. Our father is Abraham. Because 
John the Baptist says, God is able to raise out of the stone sons of Abraham. In other words, you know what? It doesn't matter what your heritage is. Don't, don't go down that road with me. That's, see, that's what I did before I became a Christ. You know, when my brother explained the gospel to me, you know, I, you know we're a converse, we're Catholic. What do you, you know, I'm holding on to that. You want me to give that up? It was hard. See, they were holding on to their heritage. They were saying, hey, you know what? Our father's Abraham. Don't come telling us that we need to be righteous, that we need to repent. What he's telling them is, you know what? I want to see some works of true repentance out of you. And don't think that it's good enough just because you're Jewish, just because you're of the nation of Israel, because that's not good enough. Just because you're an inheritor of the Abrahamic seed and just because you kept the, the tradition, the rabbis and everything, don't bank on that. But they did. See, that's why on the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord had to point out to them very, very clearly that, you know what, to everybody, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, because theirs was a self-righteousness, that doesn't cut it, is what he was saying. He says, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Theirs was a self-righteousness. See, the problem today in the church, I think that we look at sin... And when we look at sin and we look at ourselves, we always make the connection that sin is something that we do. We're always thinking, well, sin is something we do. So if I'm not doing this, therefore I must be not sinful. So therefore, if I come to church every week, well, you know, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Then I'm kind of working my way toward this. And if I don't do these things, then somehow we seem to think that we're, we have our own righteousness. We have a self-righteousness. That's what they were doing. It was purely an external thing with them. Don't believe the lie that says sin is what you do. That's a lie from the pit of hell. What the Bible teaches and what Christ teaches and and what the word of truth teaches is that sin is what we are. We are sinful. There's no getting around that. Now, does it work its way out into things that we do? Definitely. But that's just evidence of who we are. I mean, did you ever try to go through a week without sinning at all? It's hard. It's almost impossible. Why is that? Because that's what we are. We're, we're sinners saved by God's grace. And until we rid ourselves of this body, we're going to have to deal with sin. Until God comes and redeems this world, we're going to have to deal with sin. Because sin is what we are. And see, that's why Christ came. Christ came to drive men to the recognition of their sin. And after they recognized their sinful state, then he said, now I can grant you repentance. I'll change you. And because I've granted you repentance, you can taste of free forgiveness. Because you have been forgiven, you will have eternal life. I mean, you can say it another way. The only people who ever get saved... The only people who ever get saved and enter God's kingdom are people who are willing to acknowledge their sinfulness and repent of it. That's it. And see, the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they weren't convinced that they were sinners. They just thought, I I don't have any desire for repentance because I don't need to change anything. I'm okay. They had no need for holiness because they thought they were holy. How did they define holiness? They define holiness by external behavior. Look at the way I dress. Look at the robes I wear. Look at what I do. In the Jewish tradition, basically, there was three things, three practices within their faith. One was fasting. We'll talk about that. You know what they would do when they would fast? They wouldn't just go fast. They would put ashes on their head. They'd make themselves dirty, and then they'd go out in the courtyard. Hey, I'm fasting. Look at me. 
self-righteous. Look at what I'm doing. Same thing. They would give. They were supposed to give of alms and tithes and offerings. Well, they wouldn't do it in secret and in quiet. Okay? They, they would make a big show of it. You know, it'd be like somebody this morning in the offering. You know, we're taking up the offering and all of a sudden somebody stands up in the middle. Hey, I, just a hundred bucks. I'm putting a hundred dollars in the bag. I just want everybody to know. Can you imagine that? That's what they did. That's how they would act. That's how self-righteous they were. They thought it was a good thing. And then prayer. Prayer was the other practice. And they would, you know, go out on the street corner and dressed in their robes. And they would desire to be seen by everybody and use eloquent words. And everybody would sit back and go, wow, aren't they religious? Aren't they righteous? Well, Matthew chapter 9 focuses on this reality, the reality of verse 13, where he says, I am not come to call the righteous but sinners, and Luke adds, to repentance. That's the heart and soul of the message of the gospel. See, Jesus Christ can't do anything for people who think they're okay. That's not for whom he came. If you think you're okay and you think, well, then that's fine. But you're going to be lost in your sin. Because the truth of the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And unless you're absolutely perfect in your life, you've never sinned, you've never lied, you've never taken anything at all, irrespective of its value. Could have been a paper clip from work, whatever. That's stealing. Okay, You never thought a bad thought, lustful thought, anything like that. If you can claim, oh yeah, I'm perfect. Well, then, you know... You, we got the wrong Messiah then. We must be looking at you as a Messiah because, you know, there's only one person on this earth who ever lived a sinless life, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. So he can only help a sinner in desperation who knows his need. And it becomes clear in, in chapter 9. We saw in, in verses 1 to 8 where he healed a, a paralytic and, and he forgave his sin. That was the first instance where Christ forgave an individual's sin. And as a result of that, people are walking away going, wow, he forgave his sin, but I wonder how much sin Jesus can actually forgive. And then last week we saw where he ran into Matthew in verses 9 to 13. And he confronts Matthew, and he says, you follow me. And somewhere in that transaction, Matthew was converted. He was saved. Matthew doesn't share a lot of words about it because he's a humble man. But the one point that he wants to drive home is that, you know what? I wasn't just your normal Joe person in my society. I was the lowest of the low. I was a little mocus, a tax collector who would go out on the street, sit at a table amongst your own countrymen and rip them off. And they couldn't touch me because I have the power of Rome behind me. No conscience whatsoever. And so Matthew says, well, to what degree can Jesus forgive? He forgave me. I was a tax collector. I was the lowest. I was the bottom of the barrel. He forgave me. And then he threw a big party and he invited all these sinner friends and the Pharisees kind of stepped back and looked at that and said, why does your master eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? They rebuked him. It wasn't an honest question. They were, it was a critical question. Why is your so-called leader eating with these people? We doesn't he know that religious people, righteous people like us, we would never have anything to do with those kind of people. And Jesus came to his disciples' defense, and he says, first of all, in way of analogy, he says, okay, I'm, you know, I know you guys aren't that bright, so he, he's kind of making it very simple for them. Now, this isn't rocket science, guys. Those who are sick need a doctor. By your own confession, you think these people are pretty sick. So why wouldn't you help them? See, he pointed out their hypocrisy. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the kind of doctor who would come and say, hey, I got the cure here, but I'm not coming near you, dude. I don't want to get sick either. And they'd run the other way. What kind of doctor would be? that would be? That would be a horrible doctor. Even on the freeway, you get in an accident, and somehow there's a doctor present. 
You know, it's illegal for him to walk away from an accident scene if he is a, is a, is a licensed practical or a licensed practicing physician and he has the ability to help somebody. He can actually be sued if he doesn't do that. If he doesn't help. That's how serious we take the role of physicians and doctors. And what he's doing, he's pointing out to them, the Pharisees were great at diagnosing things, but they just were indifferent about the cure. They just said, well, just let them wallow in their own. We're not going to go near them. We don't want to, you know, soil our righteous garments. And the second was by argument out of Hosea. He takes a a verse there and he says, go and learn what the scriptures say. And he points out to them, they already knew what it said, but he had to kind of remind them, I have mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, what he's saying is you better go back and find out what God wants from you. It's not your ritual. He's not pleased with your religion. He wants a heart of compassion. He wants a heart that will look at these sinful people and say, man, I need to reach out to them. And that's what Christ was doing. And then thirdly, he says, by my own authority, this is the direction of my ministry. He says, I have come to call not the righteous but sinners. So the Lord clearly rejects the righteous and he receives the sinner. That's the heart of the gospel message. We all know the parables that are found in Luke 15. And I'm not going to go into them in detail. But the whole chapter basically is set up in verse 1 in Luke 15 with this verse. It says, Then drew near unto him, unto Christ, who? All the tax collectors and all the sinners to hear him. See, these people wouldn't dare go near a Pharisee. If they saw a Pharisee, they would run the other way because they would be condemned. They would receive criticism. But they drew near to Jesus because they knew Jesus had a heart of compassion on them. He had something to give them. He knew They knew that he could help them. And all the Pharisees would do is sit back in the shadows and cross their arms and how dare that man look at him he eats with tax collectors and sinners and he gives several illustrations in Luke 15 the first one in verse 4 a parable he says what man of you having a hundred sheep if he loses one of them doesn't leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after that which is lost to find it and when he's found he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. At the end of that parable, he says, Likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents. More than over 99 righteous persons who think they need no repentance. Christ is pointing out their self-righteousness. Also in verse 8, it talks of a woman with ten pieces of silver loses one. Tears the heart, the, the house apart looking for that one. Same principle. I found that which was lost. The third illustration is the, the prodigal son. We're very familiar with that. The prodigal takes his dad's inheritance, goes off in a foreign land, squanders everything he has comes to the end of his rope, realizes he had it back, better back with his dad. He goes home, and his dad doesn't condemn him, but he welcomes him. And it's interesting because at the end of that parable, you see the other son who actually stayed home, worked hard for dad, did what he was supposed to do. And when the son that left and squandered everything comes back, Dad throws a party and the, the, the son that gets angry, the one that stayed home. Why? Because he was self-righteous. He was self-righteous. And that's what he says in verse 29. He says, you know what? I've served you all these many years. What's he doing? He's, he's lifting himself up. Such an ego. And basically, at the end of the story, he's shut out. Self-righteous people never enter heaven. In Luke 18, 9, it says that he spoke this parable unto certain who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's a great explanation of the people who Jesus was dealing with. 
They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And then they despised others. That's the Pharisees. And he gives this story. He says, two men went to the, into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Once again, you see the dynamic of Jesus pointing out, you know, the, 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 in, the, in their society, the so-called righteous people, and in their society, the lowest of the low, a tax collector. The worst sinner there was known in that day. And it says, the Pharisee stood and prayed with himself. One guy said it's a good thing that he could pray with himself because God definitely wasn't listening because of his attitude. And here's what he prayed. Listen to this prayer. I thank thee that I am not as other men. And you can just picture this man in his robe out there on the street corner lifting his nose up. I'm not an extortioner or unjust or an adulterer or like that tax collector over there in the shadows in the corner. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And now I'm here to pray. He had no need at all. He didn't come to seek God. Stop and think about it. He came to make an announcement of how good he was, how righteous he was. And the story goes on. The tax collector, on the other hand, stood in the corner off in the shadows. He couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven because he was so humiliated. And it says that he beat upon his chest. And here's what he said. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, that's a prayer that God will hear every time. Be merciful to me, a sinner. At the end of the parable, it says, I tell you that this man, the the, the The tax collector went to his house justified, made righteous rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself is abased and everyone who humbles himself is exalted. See, that's the problem with the Pharisees. They were exalting themselves all the time. And even Luke 19, he gives another illustration of the same principle. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, it says, and on the way, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now, if you've been in Sunday school, you know who Zacchaeus is. He was a, a wee little man. <laughs> okay? Small. He was a short guy. He was Jewish. He was the chief tax collector. He wasn't as bad as Matthew. He was kind of the overseer of Matthew's task. But he was a chief tax collector, which means he was filthy rich, by the way. Very rich. And he gained it by ripping people off, using people like Matthew to do it. Well, the Bible says in Luke 19 that he wanted to see Jesus. And I don't think he wanted to see Jesus just to see who this guy was. I think somehow the Spirit of God had been convicting Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus had come to the end of his rope. And I think that he had a hungry heart. I think that he looked at his life and realized how he had taken advantage of all his countrymen and how sinful that was, and he just needed a touch from God. And somehow he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, probably through the miracles he had done, all these things. And I think that he was basically sick of his sinfulness. And Jesus also knew that. But since he was so small, he couldn't even get near Jesus, so he climbed up in a a tree. And Jesus, passing by, looks up in the tree. And you think about a chief tax collector hanging out in a tree. I mean, that would probably be very, very humiliating. Okay, it'd be like going to the, the uh, <clears throat> funky little parades they have down here in Redwood City on occasion, the Christmas parade or Fourth of July parade. And you go down to the parade and you see our mayor up in a tree kind of trying to see what's going on. I mean, you'd think, what in the world is that? Why isn't he riding in the, 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 the parade or why isn't he out in front? I mean, he should have a prime seat. And to do that is a very humiliating thing for somebody of Zacchaeus's. Uh, position, But that's what he did because he didn't care. He was at the end of his rope. He had had it up to here with his sin. And he needed change. And he needed it now. And he was going to do whatever it took. And Jesus passed by and he looked up in the tree and he saw Zacchaeus. And he said, Zacchaeus, come on down. First thing, wow, how does he know my name? <laughs> well, because he's God, that's why. I'm coming to your house today. It says it right in front of everybody. This is the chief tax collector. 
I mean, you just didn't go to the chief tax collector's house. That wasn't something that you would do. <laughs> that was a wrong thing. It says he made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully because he had a hungry heart. And when they saw it, the Pharisees, they all murmured, saying that he has gone to be the guest with that man that is a sinner. Self-righteousness. That's the whole point. Sometimes we need to come to the end of our self-righteousness. And we know that he was saved somewhere there between 7 and 8 because he brings forth works of repentance. He brings forth evidence that God touched his life. It says in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man... Now, he's the chief tax collector and he took a lot, trust me. By false accusation, I'll restore him fourfold. That's what Exodus 22 told him to do. He knew the law. He was Jewish. He was going to bring fruits of repentance, full restoration. And that's why Jesus said, after he said that, this day is salvation come to his house. And then he says this, probably one of the greatest statements in the Bible, for the Son of Man is come to what? To seek and to save that which is what? Lost. That which is lost. See, that's the heart and soul of the gospel message. Jesus came to save sinners. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't think you're a sinner, well, you know what? There's nothing we can do for you. See, that's why when we go out and we share our faith with people, all right, the quickest way, just cut to the chase. Just somehow find a way creatively to point out their sinful state. Easy way to do that is, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah. Okay, you're a liar. Have you ever taken anything? Yeah, you're a thief. Have you ever, uh, you know, thought a bad thought, lots of thought? Yes, well, the Bible says if you think that in your heart, then, you know, you might as well just be an adulterer. Nobody can stand up to that test. Nobody. Because there's no one perfect. And you say, well, that seems kind of... Forward, it seems kind of, it is. But frankly, if I don't get you to that point, if I don't get you to the point to say, you know what, yeah, what you say makes sense, what the Bible says makes sense, I guess I am a sinner. If you're unwilling to go there with me, I don't have anything to say. What am I supposed to say? There's nothing else anybody could say. There's nothing Jesus could do for you if you're unwilling to recognize your own sinfulness. And so he came for the worst, the vilest, those who are willing to recognize it, to turn from it, and to seek to be forgiven. Well, what does that have to do with Matthew 9, verse 14? You say, okay, you took all that time to do... Okay, just be patient. Okay, I know some of you get impatient with my teaching, but you're going to see it kind of all gel here in the next brief couple minutes. They ask a question in verse... 14. The disciples of John. Those are the people asking the question. See, John the, the Baptist came on the scene to ready the way for the Messiah. So when he came onto the scene, certain people started following him. He was kind of an odd character. But besides that, he was sent by God to prepare the way for the Lord. And so he had people following him. And his message was repentance. People would turn from their sin and he'd baptize them in recognition of their, their statement and whatnot, of their, their sinfulness. But there came a time when John said, you know what? Jesus is on the scene now. The Messiah is here. And what John said was, I must decrease. He is going to increase. So, and he told that to his followers because they were very loyal followers. And so he stopped and he said, okay, gang, here's the deal. You're going to follow him now. I'm going bye-bye. Go ahead. And he pushed them toward Christ. Well, some of these people, for whatever reason, didn't get the message. And so, even up until this time, they were still following John the Baptist. Some of them may have not even heard of the Messiah, which is hard to believe. But in, in Acts 19, kind of, Paul indicates that. They've been running around loose, and they don't even know about a Christ. They don't even think the Messiah is here yet. And so, somehow, they were still connected to John. The Bible doesn't really tell us how. But so they consider themselves disciples of John. 
John, by this time, is in prison. And they're very devout to John. They're still his disciples. Okay? And they're very tightly connected to their tradition, to their Jewish tradition, to the Pharisaic traditions. And so they ask this question. The disciples of John ask an honest question. They say, why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples don't fast. Why does that happen? Why do you and your disciples not fast like we do? See, it indicates that they were getting close to the truth, but they just weren't there yet. Because they had some questions, even about their own practices. That's what happened to me before I was saved. My brother shared with me the gospel message, and I said, okay, this is good, but, you know, I don't think this is for me. But something rang true in my heart. And I remember week after week as I come home from school, going down to the priest's office there and sitting with the priest and saying, you know what, my brother says that we don't need to pray to Mary. The Bible doesn't say that we need to pray to Mary. What do you say about that? Well, you know, the, the Bible teaches this, but, you know, the traditions of our church teach this. Okay. Well, my brother says, the Bible says, that I don't have to come to you conf- confession. What's this, what do you say about that? Well, he's right. The Bible says that. But the traditions of the church, Steve, teach this. And that was the whole spiel the whole time. And finally, I thought, okay, so basically I'm supposed to believe you over the Bible? Why? And God convicted my heart. That's what they're doing. They're saying, hey, we're doing all this stuff. Why are you guys doing it? See, you have to understand, in the, in, in the Jewish faith, there's only really one prescribed day of, a, of fasting, the Day of Atonement. That's it. They're not told to fast twice a week. That's not what they're told to do. Yom Kippur is the only day that they're prescribed to fast in the old, entire Old Testament. But see, that wasn't good enough for them. So they took that one fast day and they said, we know what we're going to do. We're going to make this an every week thing. Matter of fact, we'll do it twice a week so that we can feel good about ourselves when we put our ashes on our head and we walk out and everybody goes, oh, they're fasting. Aren't they righteous? Look at what they're doing for God. Self-righteousness once again. The real question they were asking is, how come your religion is so different than ours? That's what they're asking Jesus. How come you don't do the things that we do? How come it doesn't work out that way? How come that we fast and we give alms and all this, and you guys aren't quite doing all that? See, theirs was a very external religion. And and sometimes rituals basically are the substance of religion, man-made religion especially. So they're asking the question, how come you don't do what we do? How come your approach is so different? See, they didn't see religion as a matter of humility or sinfulness or repentance. They saw religion as a matter of ceremony, as a matter of ritual. And you know what? We're not far from that today. I think of, you know, what I was raised in, the Roman Catholic Church. You see people going to the Roman Catholic Church every week, faithfully, sometimes several times a week. And they're doing rituals they're not prescribed to do by the Bible. I mean, you walk in, you put your little hand in this water, and you, where does that come from? You walk down the aisle, you bow down. Where does that come from? Genuflect. All this stuff. It's not found in the Bible. It's ritual. Light a candle, you do all that. And you know what? We're not off the hook either as Protestants because you know what? We have our rituals we do too. We sit down at dinner, and what do we do before we eat? We pray. Sometimes we do it in a comatose state. Just being honest. We do. You know, we own a Bible. Maybe once in a while we'll open it. Because, you know, we go to church. Why? Well, we just go to church. We sing a song. We go through all the forms, all the routines, all the externals. We don't understand what's going on inside. We don't understand sometimes that we need to be convicted of our sin. We need to have a deep repentance in our heart. See, that's what he's saying to them. 
Why is your system so different? Why don't you do the things we do? Well, look at his answer in verse 15. This seems kind of out of place at first, but it makes perfect sense. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast. What he's referring to is the attendance of the bridegroom, kind of like the wedding party that we would have today, the bridal party. And back then they would have in their culture, and they even do it today sometimes, the wedding goes for basically four days. They have a big party, or seven days, for, for seven days. And the man getting married would choose his best friends, and they were responsible to keep this celebration alive for seven days until the ceremony actually happened. That was their rule. So they had to make sure everybody was having a good time. They had to make sure that they promoted all the festivities, that all the dinners were well, you know, attended. Everybody was having fun. Everybody was looking at this as a celebration. It's a happy time. And what he says to them is, do you expect these people during the wedding process here of seven days, do you expect them to mourn? Do you expect them to be unhappy? In other words, what he's pointing out to them, very simply, is your ritual is out of sync with reality. You're practicing something that has no connection to reality here. He says you crank out your routines irrespective of what God is doing on the inside. In other words, there's no connection between reality and your ritual. Oh, great, you fast twice a week. Jesus probably asked them, well, do you mourn twice a week? Their, their answer would probably be like, well, what do you mean? See, if you know anything about fasting, fasting is directly connected with mourning. That's the only time that you would really fast is when you were mourning. So the Pharisees would go out on the street, dump ashes on their head, and they would be fasting. Well, are you mourning something? No, I'm just fasting. Well, why are you doing that? Well, so people can see me fasting. So they know that I fast. So that it makes me look good. Are you praying while you're fasting? Fasting is connected with prayer. Well, no, I'm just, you know, fasting. I'm kind of looking like fasting. I mean, it's just crazy. It's, it's not uncommon even today. Sometimes you ask people, you know, you're, you're talking to somebody and they'll say, well, you know, we go to church. You go to church? Great. How long have you gone to church? We went to church 20 years. Why do you go to church? Did you ever ask somebody that? Did you ever ask somebody why they go to church? It's kind of a fun thing to do. Because most of them don't know. They just stop and they go, well, what do you mean? We've always gone to church. Are you saying we shouldn't go to church? No, I'm just asking you why you go. Do you go there to worship God? What? What's that? What's the reason? What's the attitude? See, he's saying, what Jesus is saying to them is, you have a system that is purely external. It's just on performance. And there's no connection to reality. And what Jesus is saying is, the bridegroom is here. I'm here with them. Why would you look at them and say, why aren't you mourning and fasting? The bridegroom is here with them. This is a happy time. Look at all the, the miracles that are happening. Look at the people that are following me. This is a good time. We're not going to fast right now. That wouldn't make sense with the reality of what's going on. But he says in verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom shall be snatched away. Hopiro, violently taken away. What's he referring to? He's referring to his own crucifixion. That's what he's referring to. He says there's going to come a day when the bridegroom, speaking of himself, Christ, is going to be snatched away violently from these disciples. And you know what? That's their time of fasting because that's going to be when they're mourning. Not now. Plain and simple, if you go through any religious exercise apart from an honest attitude in your heart, it's purely ritual and nothing more. Hopefully, you get that this morning. If you just fast to fast, if you just pray to pray, 
If you just come to church on Sunday because Sunday's coming and you go to church. If you read your Bible just to read your Bible. Or you sing a song just to sing a song. And it's totally disconnected with what God is doing in your life. You've missed it. You've missed the entire package. He's saying, look, I'm here and I'm here to show you that we have an internal, a vital, a relationship with the living God. And what we do is a result of what's happening in that relationship. And right now he says, the bridegroom is here and the wedding is going on. We're not going to cry at the wedding. You, you cry at a funeral. Hopefully you don't cry at a wedding, unless there are tears of joy maybe. You're happy at a wedding. Since this is not a time for mourning. And by the way, the Lord even says you shouldn't be fasting unless you're fasting out of a broken heart. That's why you fast. That's why the Old Testament gave only one fast. Today we have all these books on fasting and basically it doesn't make any sense biblically. That's why Isaiah and Zechariah 7 both tell us that God doesn't want our fasts. <laughs> he wants our love. Fasting will come very normally when we have a relationship with Christ. Fasting will come very naturally at the appropriate time. Fasting will come very genuinely when you have a broken heart, when you're seeking God in prayer, when you're, when you're seeking God in your own sinfulness. But to use anything as a means, some ritual, to gain the favor of God is to miss the entire point. And he really shows the difference between what they taught and what he taught. He says, your whole system is, is completely not connected with reality. They just function, 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 function without any meaning. It's like the people that go to church, go to church, go to church. It doesn't affect them. They have no purpose in it. They just go. And what he's saying is we don't fast unless there's something to fast about. And we get happy when there's something to get happy about. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the disciples were utterly devastated, beloved. They were shattered. And you know what? There's times like that in our lives. Some of you may be right there right now. You feel like your life has been shattered. You think a routine or a ritual is going to help you? I don't think so. The only thing that can help you is a living, real relationship with the God of gods, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. It's the only thing that can help you. And that only comes when you have a broken heart. And what he's saying in, his, in effect here is, you know what, I can't even relate to your religion to what you've made it. We can't connect it all at this level. That's what Christ is telling him. And he gives them two illustrations to point that out. See, Jesus isn't reforming their, their, their Pharisaic beliefs. See, Jesus doesn't want to take your life and reform it. Do you understand that? That's not what Christianity is about. Jesus isn't here to make your life better. He's here to give you a brand new life because the life you have now is utterly wasted. It's utterly sinful. That's why the Bible talks about transformation. It doesn't talk about addition. We don't add Jesus as a Savior to our life. In other words, we're going down the road of life and, oh, Jesus, yeah, come on on board. You know, I'll just keep on going this way. That's not salvation. Salvation is when God transforms your life and you do a 180 and rather than running from Him, you're running toward Him. Rather than wallowing in your sin, you're, you're wallowing in His grace because you realize how much you need it, because you realize how much of a sinner you really are. And so He says, we have nothing in common. And what He's going to say here is, everything I'm saying to you is diametrically opposed to everything that you are doing. There's no connection at all. And he gives two illustrations. He says, No man puts a piece of new cloth on an old garment, 
For that which is put in to fill it up takes from the garment, and the tear is made worse. See, back in those days, the garments were made of cotton and wool, and both obviously shrink. So if you had an old pair of pants or an old robe, and you needed to patch up a hole, and you took a new piece of garment, and you put it in that hole, and you sewed it around there, what happens the next time you wash it? The new garment shrinks, and it tears away from the old garment. So it's, the hole becomes bigger as a result of that. You're worse off. You can't put a new one on an old robe. You can't put a new patch on old cloth. You have to use old material to do that. That would make sense. And what he's saying is there's no way that what I'm teaching you can fit into your system. There's no way. There's no way the message that I'm giving you of internal holiness, of real repentance, of hard attitude, can ever fit into your, real, your, your ritualistic system. There's no way. It won't even connect. You can't contain it. Secondly, he says in verse 17, Neither do men put new wine in old wineskins. Else the wineskins break and the wine runs out and the wineskins perish. But they put new wine in new wineskins and both are preserved. See, they used to store their wine in basically the skin of an animal. They would skin an animal, sometimes a big animal, a small animal. And then they would sew the thing up and they'd use the neck of the animal as kind of the, the spout. And they would put their, their wine in that. And as the wine would, you know, ferment and all sorts of things would happen to it, the skin was able to stretch with it. And when you were done with that, if you took that old wine skin and kind of let it lay around for a little bit, it got dry and cracked and everything. And if you took new wine and you put it in the old wine skin, what do you think would happen after a little bit? The thing would just explode. It would leak out all the cracks. It couldn't contain it. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? Your system of religion won't hold this truth. It's, it won't, it's not even connected in any way. And he's telling them, you have to dump your system. You have to dump your religion in order to come to me. Because your religion is so filled with self-righteousness, you'll never get out of it. There's no connection at all. You know what the result of that was? See, the system of Jesus' day, the religious system, just like the religious system today, they had only one option. The system had to eliminate Christ. They had to eliminate Christ. That's the only option they had. And they did. It's useless to try to put the two together. They knew that. He knew that. So what did they do? They killed Jesus Christ. Get rid of him. It'll go away. See, he didn't come to make a few additions to Judaism. The forms of Judaism that they, they had back then, and it was a, an adulterated form of Judaism, by the way, because they made it, catered it to their own needs and wants. It couldn't contain what he brought in truth. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. See, their religion was not of the Old Testament. It was something they created. Just like people create religions today. So Jesus said, you know what? Your system says you're righteous. Mine says that you're not. Mine says you're utterly sinful. There's no way to patch these two together. If you hang on to yours, well, that's it. I can't help you. And I really believe, people, when someone comes to Christ... They have to say goodbye to that ritualistic system, whatever it is. The way of doing business as usual. And they have to confess Christ. That's a true believer. That's somebody who truly recognizes Christ. Three marks of a true believer. First of all, he follows the Lord. Verse 9, Matthew heard Jesus say, hey, get up and follow me. And he did it. He did it. He just got up and followed him. That's characteristic. It's unquestioning obedience. That's what we're called to. Secondly, a true Christian feeds the lost. Matthew couldn't wait to call his friends and his, his sinner buddies together and meet the Lord Jesus Christ, to introduce them. He couldn't wait for that. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ constrains me. And he calls himself an ambassador for Christ. That's what we're called to do. We're, we're called to beg people to come to Christ. Because their eternity is at stake. And thirdly, a true believer forsakes legalism. Forsakes legalism. And we see that in the, the remaining passage here. Is trying to sew this new patch on an old robe. It's not going to work. There's no connection. You need to forsake all that. Leave it behind. Let me ask you some questions this morning before we have our communion time. Just personally, as you just, just you and the Lord, just focus for these next couple of minutes. Do you follow the Lord? Do you follow the Lord with a life of unquestioning obedience? Is your highest privilege and your greatest joy and the deepest desire to obey Him? If not, there's a real question there about your salvation. There's a real question about whether or not you are truly in Christ. Secondly, do you feed the lost? Do you have a compassion? Do you have a mercy? Do you have a care for those who are without Christ? Or do you just sit back in your judgmental seat of grace and judge everybody? Do you sense the heart of God beating in your heart toward those who are outside of Christ? And do you forsake legalism? Do you know the difference between true worship and just going to church? Big difference. True comprehension of the knowledge of God and His Word rather than just reading the Bible. Do you know the difference between bearing your heart naked before God and praying Or is it just a routine? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our study this morning. Lord, we thank you that you came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Lord. And Lord, that that opens the door for all, because all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Lord, we thank you that you came for sinners. You came for those who fall short. And Lord, help us not to believe the lie that we're righteous on our own. Some of us, even Christians, sometimes we think that we're pretty righteous. Lord, forgive us for that. Lord, save us from our own rituals, our own bondage. Lord, help us to hold on to a living, live relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for the clarity in which your word speaks. And we pray that even at this point in this service, Lord, if there's those here who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, who have yet to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I pray that you would move in their heart, that you would grant them the repentance that they need. They can't save themselves. Nobody can. Lord, I pray that their heart would be turned to you. We pray this. In Christ's name, for his sake. Amen.